Holly Knoll, host of the Everyday Entrepreneur Podcast. If you've always wanted to start a business and don't know where or how to start, you've come to the right place. After leaving an unfulfilling corporate career, I decided it was time to start a business of my own. Today, I'm a business coach and creator of The Consultant Code, where I help people start services-based businesses in 60 days or less. So grab your latte because you're about to be inspired, armed with knowledge, and given simple tools to start a business of your own from my interviews with Everyday Entrepreneurs. Welcome back to the Everyday Entrepreneur Podcast, where this season we're focused on women in tech. Hey friend, welcome back to the Everyday Entrepreneur Podcast. I am thrilled that you decided to join me here today. I've got not one, but two incredible women in tech entrepreneurs who are going to share their story with you today. I have Cynthia Canaris and Bernadine Wu, who together founded a retail consultancy called Fit for Commerce. So let me tell you just a little bit about them. Cynthia is the executive director of OSF Digital Strategy, where she is responsible for developing and executing the consulting team's strategic initiatives. Cynthia oversees the consulting practice and recruits top talent for the team and their clients. Cynthia was the co-founder and chief strategy officer of Fit for Commerce before the acquisition. Cynthia is also co-founder and executive director of the Grassroots Women E-Commerce Execs Organization. She created this organization to provide networking, education, and growth opportunities for women in e-commerce. Cynthia is a frequent speaker and writer for leading industry conferences and resources. She's a thought leader in digital organizations and innovation. She is also on the advisory council for the nonprofit Souls for Souls. Bernadine Wu is the executive managing director of OSF Digital Strategy. She was the founder and CEO of Fit for Commerce, a business which resulted from her many years of operational and strategic success in helping businesses accelerate their growth through digital. She also co-founded the Innovation Office, which is the retail industry's first innovation curation service. She's a frequent speaker, a writer, and a thought leader for the industry's de facto resources, including the National Retail Federation's Shop.org, Digital Commerce 360, ShopTalk, and many more. Bernadine is on the board of Women of Color Retail Alliance and has also served on the NRF Shop.org board, the NRF Digital Council, and its awards committee, and many more. She also created the group Women in Sustainable Retail. So with that, let me introduce to you these two fabulous women, Cynthia and Bernadine. Welcome back to the Everyday Entrepreneur Podcast. Today, I have Bernadine and Cynthia. Hey, ladies. So glad to see you and thank you for being here. Hello. Yeah, we are excited. Yes. We've been talking about this. This has been, the planning has been in the works for a couple of weeks now. And actually, this is my first podcast interviewing two people. And so this is going to be more like a, a party podcast where we are like it. We're, we're kind of partying over Zoom and having a, a group discussion. And I'm excited to dig more into your careers, your background, and then your perspectives on women in tech. So let's, we'll get started. Why don't we just start out with your journeys? I'd love to hear just a little bit more about how you start, Bernadine, let's start with you. How did you get started? Where where did you start your career and what brought you to where you are today? Thanks, Holly. First of all, we are super excited to be here. We're especially excited to to have the both of us on because that's kind of rare. I think that might be our new thing. And thank you. We love what you do. We love your podcast and, and we're excited about your audience. You know, I'm often asked about my career 
And, and the best way that I can put it is that I started big, big companies and I got smaller and smaller and smaller. So after college, I was recruited into what was then Anderson Consulting, which is now Accenture, you know, 55,000 people worldwide. And then after that, I actually went to Wall Street to like a 13,000 person investment bank and then a maybe like a 1300 person investment bank. And it just got smaller and smaller. I, I was asked to to launch a U.S. company of a U.K. company that was one of the first software as a service e-commerce platform technologies. And so launched that in the U.S. And that was really my entree into the retail space. So actually, I'm not a former retailer, although on our team, we have many former retailers. I really just happened into it. And then by watching the the space around retail, commerce, e-commerce and technology. I mean, I'd always been in sort of like the technology sphere, realized that there was a need. And that's that's how we started Fit for Commerce, which I know we're going to talk about later, but just so that's how I usually tell the story. Biggest to smallest and finally launching our own company because that was kind of a natural next step. That's Since. amazing. And, and- Speaking yeah. of, so how big is Fit for Commerce now going from Accenture to Fit for Commerce today? Well, it started with like four people in the early days. I used to call it the Fantastic Four. And then it grew to like the Fantastic 14 and then grew it to, as Cynthia and I always say, it depends on how you count people. We grew it to about 50 people and then with extensions for another hundred. And then we were acquired last year. And I know we're going to talk about that later too. Oh, yes. I'm super excited to dive into that. And congratulations. That's that's amazing. Yeah. Cynthia. Way more random than birdies. <laughs> <laughs> Mine's random. I just make it sound not so random. <laughs> mine, mine is very random. <laughs> even <laughs> better. Even more <laughs> twists and turns. Welcome. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. French major. Realized there was no career there. <laughs> I, I was in Connecticut. I was dating someone in New York. He moved. I missed New York more than I missed him. So I <laughs> thought, how can I get to New York? And so I took technology classes and then I came to New York and went to got a job. And I really didn't know anything about Wall Street, but I went, one of my interviews was at this, you know, I was at a big investment bank and there was so much energy in the room and everybody was like rushing around and people are talking loud and laughing. And I'm like, these are my people. So I realized this is where I should work. So I got a job on Wall Street, was a programmer, worked my way up, ended up being a a CIO for for Deutsche Bank, not the CIO, but they had CIO for different desks. Yeah. And then, then I moved back to the States and I moved to Fort Lauderdale and bought a bridal salon. Naturally. Very random. As one, as one would. I, as obviously. One would. Exactly. Well, as we discussed earlier, I am Greek and Greek people sooner or later have to own their own business. So and it's funny because Bernie was saying how she's not a former retailer and I was thinking neither am I. But oh, yeah, I am. I forgot. You were actually a very traditional retailer. I was. I was a really traditional retailer. So I had that for I think maybe three years and Bernadine reached out and said how she was looking to start this company and would I do that with her? And I said, sure. So I sold my brand salon and we started Fit for Commerce. I mean, both of your stories are, you know, obviously there's so much detail and decisions and critical points that 
brought you here versus there. I always find it fascinating when people tell their stories that it just looking back, I think you guys are both very humble and like all of the hard work and the the probably mixed with some luck and some, you know, more effort that went into just creating what you have today. So, you know, just kudos to both of you and not to gloss over it all. But these are fascinating backgrounds in history. But Cynthia, I have a question for you. You said you took you took technology classes. What what made you want to take technology classes and what type of technology classes did you take? I just learned how to code, really, which I you know didn't learn in school. And my my sister actually was we're, we're looking for things that would pay money and she found it. So we, I, another random thing, I worked at the VA hospital as a ward clerk during the day and I took classes at night. But I have, I get more mileage out of those VA hospital stories than anything I've ever done because it's crazy, but, but super interesting. And I really enjoyed that time. But then, yeah, then I was able to get into technology and have that career. Okay. Well, I I'm I I really want to ask you your best VA hospital story, but we'll save that for the end if we have time <laughs> because I I'm I'm guessing you have some good ones. So, it, you guys the the common thread here is is Wall Street. So, can you tell me about like how did you meet? How did you know like you liked each other that you wanted to work together? And then so many years later here you are, but let's start out with your origin story. How did how did you first meet? Well, we both worked for this one man at different times. And he kept, I don't know if he kept telling Bernie, but he kept telling me that I should meet Brandine. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, oh, you should meet Bernie. You really like her. And I guess he's telling Bernie the same thing. And then he, he took a job at a different company. He hired Bernie and I decided to go and be a consultant. So he brought me in and and that's how Bernie and I met. So he was right. He was right. And, you know, I think also, look, smart, awesome women, (laughs) gravitate to each other, right? It's just when you, especially when you're in a male-dominated world such as Wall Street. I mean, we were there in the days of Wolf of Wall Street. Like that, the stuff that went in that movie, like that's what we had. And so there were a lot of things that, you know, some women gravitated to each other to meet, to have fun, to support each other. I mean, there wasn't like this women's movement stuff. It wasn't a conversation, but it just, there was some naturalness that happened. And there were some women that did the opposite that would crush you like a bug. <laughs> just, like, <laughs> just like, you know, other, like other men sometimes. And of course there were supportive men as, as well. So I think we just sort of found each other and would just create this almost daily, you know, conversation that we would have, whether it was like while I was driving or, you know, while we were passing by the you know, the the water cooler, so to speak. And we just found that it, it was, for me, it wasn't based on just, oh, another woman. It was just, it was just our interests and just how our MOs. And I think in, in life and in work, you, you find people that have similar values and MOs and you just drive with each other. And mm-hmm. so I think very early on, we knew we were onto something. And so- And we were at we, multiple companies together, different companies. Yeah. So after after that company, then we went to another company together. That was the early days of online trading. Actually, that was our introduction to, you know, quote, online before there was really like the web the way we know it today. And then from there, you know, every opportunity that we had, we would talk about like, hey, are you interested in this? You want to do this? And sometimes the timing was right, sometimes not. And I think like if you look at those threads throughout your life and, you know, we're 
we're old enough to kind of look back at several decades of of career stuff and you know and lifestyle you realize who those women are in that journey that really helped you be who you are and get to where you are mm-hmm. you you mentioned your mo's and your similar values and actually when you when you both have been talking about Wall Street, I was just in New York last weekend and my friend lives a block off Wall Street. I spent a lot of time in that neighborhood. So I'm just, this is fresh in my head and I'm just imagining both of you bustling around in this neighborhood, you know, with a bunch of men in suits. And here you are, these like incredibly intelligent, you know, smart women that are also like, I don't know, making shit happen on Wall Street too. And so when you say your your MOs and your values, what what are what is your MO? What are your values that connected the two of you? We are, as we like to say, get shit done for people. <laughs> we just like to do things and we like to solve problems. Like for me, that's been the cons- except for maybe the bridal salon, but other than that, it's been a consistent thread through all my jobs where it's problem solving. Like I didn't love technology. Like I, you know, I wasn't one of those people who just loved technology, but I loved it as a tool to solve a problem. And we were basically solving the business problems. And Bernie and I, we can't do anything, any place we walk into, any, it's a store, it's a restaurant, it's whatever. And we start going, why do they have a guy standing there? It'd be more efficient if you had him there. I think of that. <laughs> Watch out world. <laughs> we have that, we cannot turn that off. You know, I think the the other part of it is that we've both mostly been in service roles, right? Mm-hmm. Whether the business was a service kind of company or our roles were in a service sort of oriented manner. And I think that is maybe that's natural to both of us being part of like immigrant families that we, you know, we really value being the help and helping. And so our leadership styles, we just, we were just asked this the other day. I think our leadership styles are very much service oriented. You know, that, that inverted pyramid thing where, you know, you're, we're there to serve the people that, yes, work for us, but are doing the good work and the hard work. And so like we, we very much take that philosophy and that MO seriously, but it just comes naturally to us. I hope our people would say that about us. That my very first job was waitress because I am Greek after all. <laughs> but that's a good point that, that you made about about service. And that's why our our clients fall through, you know, through this whole period of fit for commerce and now digital strategy. Like we view we view them as people we want to help make successful. And I think they all view us as, you know, trusted advisors. So it's a it's a very, you know, you know, sort of a unified approach to their business. Being service-oriented, running a service-based business. I mean, that that's a very good match. <laughs> and yeah. I also was a, a waitress, you know, that was working in a restaurant, was my first job at 16. I was a hostess at, at a at a place called Perkins, which is like a Denny's. Oh, um, totally know it. <laughs> yeah, so we know amazing. It. Not a lot of, some people do, it depends on where you grew up. But yeah, I worked at Perkins, but... Honestly, don't you think you learned so much from that job that you use the rest of your life? I think for I think anybody who eats out needs to work at a restaurant at one point in their life, which is the entire population. Everybody. Agree. Yep. Yep. And I think something you said, Cynthia, resonated with me is going where most where the money is and not that money is my biggest driver. But hey, I mean, I'm a single person and it it is (laughs) without money. I'm kind of sunk. But when I was when I was 16, I 
I wanted a job that could where I could make the most money and in the least amount of time. And that did involve like folding clothes at a store. So it was waitressing and I got, you know, I love the multitasking and the talking to people, but it was also super efficient in terms of like tips. Four hours, I could make a hundred bucks on a Sunday morning. So I think those, it's interesting how our early jobs create threads in our lives that we still use like, you know, decades later, right? They're so formative. The thing I, I learned most from waitressing was the, you know, leave your attitude at the door kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Because no one needs an unhappy waiter. No, no one is not, no, you're not no going to do well. You're not going to, you, you, you walk in unhappy, you're going to get yep. unhappier, right? Yep. But you, you know, fake it till you make it. You walk in with your right attitude. And then before you know, you have a good day and your customers are happy and it changes the whole thing. That was my big takeaway from that. That and I think it's you like that is the ultimate. The customer is at the focal is the focal point, right? Mm-hmm. Like customer service, customer centricity. You know, we all use all these words today now, but they're like it is almost back to basics. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's super basic and foundational. And and if a sixteen year old can grasp it, then you know <laughs> it's <laughs> that that's that's a good thing, and that will pay off dividends later in life. So. Pivoting a little bit, let's get to your fit for commerce story. Definitely want to dive deeper there. This is the Everyday Entrepreneur podcast. So of course, I want to hear more about your entrepreneur journey. And one of the biggest things that I always wonder when I think, when I hear your, when I meet business owners is like, why did you start your business? You know, you both have very successful careers working for other people, working in very, you know, highly, highly, I want to use the word sexy, but highly like prestigious industries and for prestigious companies. What, what made you want to start Fit for Commerce and and a retail consultancy of your own? So there was a point where during this early software as a service company that, that I launched in the U.S. and Cynthia helped me with that we realized in the retail space, there were savvy folks about product marketing, you know, and classic retail. And this is the early days of, you know, e-commerce. And many companies were just being introduced to e-commerce or thinking, oh, e-commerce should be like this little thing over there. It's not going to amount to much. And because of that, there was not a lot of knowledge about the investment, the decisions that one has to make, the technologies that you have to use, the talent that you have to grow, because it wasn't like you could just go find this talent in the market. And so we saw this, this gap. And as we thought about the gap, we thought, you know, we could really help a lot of retailers. And, and we use the word retailers broadly because it's, you know, it's brands, manufacturers, you know, B2B companies and, and grocers. And it's everybody nowadays. But we really thought that we could be helpful to this part of the market. And as we talked to folks, we, we did confirm that, that what they needed was strategic business help making strategic and business and technology and staffing kinds of decisions. So we really started out as a consultancy. We also created a process where when a retailer wanted to choose a technology, we would help them make that decision. And it was a very opaque market back then. It still sort of is, but there there wasn't a lot of knowledge about what does this technology do versus that technology. So we actually named the company Fit for Commerce as to mean are you making the right decisions that are fit for you, meaning like an appropriate fit for you? And it also was a little bit of a play of like, are you fit, you know, for commerce? Are you ready? Are you healthy? And 
And so that's that's kind of how we got started. And as soon as we opened the doors, I mean, we had clients lined up already. It just sort of took off. And the more people heard about what we did, the more, to be honest, like the more references and the more growth we got. And then we also just got really, really involved in the industry like centrally with the, you know, conference, like we helped build some of these conferences and some of these organizations by just being good partners and being, sometimes we jokingly say like in the center of the universe, in the center of this like digital universe, but paying attention to how can we help the broader industry? Not just like, how can we help ourselves, but how can we grow this industry, this e-commerce thing that then became digital omni-channel and, you know, and all the other new buzzwords. So yeah. that's Bernadine's story. Yes, let's say let's get going. <laughs> All right, let, let's let's hear it because I didn't have an idea. I didn't notice a gap in the marketplace. I didn't say we should create this business, but Branding said, "Hey, I'm going to create this business. Come do it with me." And I that said, was my question. Like, sure. how did yeah? <laughs> like, I really started. I was really wondering, like. This happened when you guys were at a restaurant critiquing the processes at a restaurant. You also <laughs> like probably I, so was, first, I, I was in Florida in my bridal salon. And, you know, as I learned when Burning was at that other e-commerce company, turns out if you're if you're the kind of worker that Burning so, and I are, that probably you are, a bridal salon does not take up all your energy or mental capacity. So <laughs> while I was there, I was working part time for that company that Burning was at. And so then, like, yeah. So then she said, you know, I had this idea. I want to go do this. And I'm like, yes. And I think that relates back to the original question you were asking about MO and that sort of thing. Like, you know, nothing would have made me happier than to spend time building a business with someone like Bernadine, who was also one of my best friends. And, you know, I just viewed it as a lot of puzzles and a lot of challenges that we could tackle. But I really didn't know anything about it. <laughs> I love it. I love the contrast. And I, I love that you guys both approached doing this business together from very different angles. Bernie, you said something about just, you know, you went from idea to just opening the doors. That process is not easy. Just an idea to like, okay, we're, we're in business now. Now, now everyone come, come to us. Like, can you break that, un I guess, unpack it a little bit for us? Like, what does that look like going from an idea to like day one, like, we're in business. How, how does that process work? What when it went into making yourselves a, an official business? I think it's a little easier when you're providing a service as opposed to a product. If you have to build a technology or you have to open a warehouse or you have to buy inventory, that's a little, that's a harder ramp up time or it's just a different kind of a ramp up time. For us, we we had already, I had already talked to folks in the market. Would, you know, if I open this up, would you would you want this kind of help? You know, what kind of help would you need? So that's why we didn't, you know, when I opened it up, we already had clients lined up. Ironically, we we were also building a technology tool at the same time. So I had taken my my personal money and invested in building a technology that would be an automatic matching and discovery site so that retailers could find technologies and solutions and partners that they needed. And in some, I still think that there's a need today. But as we launched this business, there was like two paths. One was the consulting path and one was this product that we were creating that was gonna be this awesome wizard website. And looking back, we blew a lot of money on it. And, you know, we, we 
We don't regret the process because we learned a lot from it, but there is meaningful money that we used. And in the end, as we were building this product, the consulting practice took off. And we realized that there's ways of, of automating within the consulting practice that we can use some basic tools like Excel, Access, scripts, et cetera, but it still needed a consulting touch. And so we kind of honed in on like, hey, what's our combination of using tools and consulting? And then we kind of abandoned the, the, the sort of automated self-serve approach, but it wasn't without some agony and pain around money that we blew and realizing that, you know, one of, and this is one of the hardest lessons as, as an entrepreneur is when to not throw good money after bad money, when to cut your losses. And boy, did we spend a lot of angst and, you know, sorry, not especially, nights, when, you know, especially you know, when you still believe that. in the idea, right? Like you still yeah. believed in the idea that made it extra hard, right? It wasn't yeah. like, crap idea. Let's, let's change our minds. It was scrap it and move on. Plus you had yeah. invested so much money in time. Yeah. Right. Like, right. Right. And I think there's more like nowadays, there's way more savvy around launching MVPs, you know, minimal viable products, getting market, you know, product into the market faster, failing faster. So there's, there's better best practices that I think if we were to do this again today, we would we would do it a little differently instead of trying to build like this awesome thing and then release it. But yeah, that that was tough. Like, you know, look, all entrepreneurs have scars and, you know, heartache along the way. You know, I like to think it builds character, but sometimes it doesn't build revenue. <laughs> and right. ultimately, you know, as, as we'll talk about, we we ended up OK. Really quick follow up question, because it. I, I would love to know what was your thought process to decide like, nope, we're not going to do this. It sounds like your, the retail consulting piece was taking off, but how did you separate, I guess, their feelings or emotions and like the the tie you had with with this product to say, nope, we're walking away. What Was there a way that you just, that made that decision very clear for you? I think there was a point where the bills just got too big mm-hmm. and you know, we, we weren't balancing it out and we knew we were making an investment, but we, we charted out the path we were going and we thought, you know, maybe let's at least pause this. And this is why having a business partner is so critical and having someone else, you know, having each other side by side where, you know, we, we agree with each other 80% of the time and that's great. And you want a business partner that's like that, but you also want a business partner who's going to challenge the status quo or your decisions or or even if we agree, we we always go down the path of of why not, you know, or 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 why differently. And so C- Cynthia certainly keeps me on, you know, on that. And she challenges me and I challenge her. And that's why, you know, I would never recommend going it alone. Whether whether that partner is a right hand or an equal, that's that's up to your your business. But I think that like for all I know, if it wasn't for Cynthia, I'd still have been like throwing more money after it. Unlikely, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great segue actually into where I wanted to go next with you both is just the partnership piece. You know, there's the solopreneur kind of mindset and track. And and honestly, that's where I'm at right now. My business is very small. It's a one-person consultancy with a with a podcast on the side. Do I need a team to help me support, help support me in some of these things? Yeah, right now I, I actually do. So I'm, I'm thinking about that. But I guess for you, what would you say 
makes for a successful partnership. You, I, I hear these nightmare stories of companies breaking up or one partner getting kicked out or, you know, what's made you guys really successful and has made your business professional and personal relationship really flourish and, and, and last what, what is, what have been the keys to success? We were friends first, I think like not friends outside of work, like we met through work. And I think that was very important too, because we were well aware of each other's work ethic and our, the fact that we are both, well, kids sound bad when I say it about myself, but just really smart and good at our jobs. Sit back. And so next. Yeah, next. And so, so we had that going in. And I would say now, like of my, you know, five closest friends, I met them all through work for the, the same thing, right? Just, I like how they work. And it builds a, a trust and a, a, you know, shared values. So that was one thing. And then I think the second thing is we just have a really, really, really strong commitment to each other and to each other's success and happiness. So I think I'm going to use this expression that I've never used in my whole life, but geez, my ride or die. I think I never said that, but okay. <laughs> I, I, so I, I think that it. it was like yeah. a really, really strong commitment. So. Yeah. And it's, it takes work. It's like a marriage. It takes work like day in, day out. You know, I'm sure I get on Cynthia's nerve and we, we have, we, we're not the same. Like we do have different styles. We do have different strengths and weaknesses and we have different roles too. But I think you said it, Holly, about flourishing that along this journey, and this is 15 years now that we have had fit for commerce and now a part of OSF, that we have been working on this. And so, you know, through those trials and tribulations in the early days of entrepreneurship, through the middle part, you know, the trough of despair and the can't make payroll, you know, and then as well as the the big wins and the and the, you know, wow, that work paid off. We've we've had it all. And through it all, it, the business relationship has flourished. And the friendship has flourished too, but it, we, we have some really hard conversations all the time and all the time. that's, that's, that's what it takes. And sometimes it's like, oh, pull the circuit breaker. Can't talk about this right now. Got to calm down, you know, and it's not, even we've gotten better. We've gotten better oh. at the hard conversations. Like we've learned how to have those conversations in a way more productive way, a way less emotional way. I think, you know, Burnby's definitely helped me with with that. So I really think that we've gotten a lot better at the conversations. And when we kind of hit a negative spot, we get over it a lot more quickly now. But I think, I mean, I've always known that, you know, she's on my side. So, you know, even yeah. if it's like bumpy or whatever, like I know that I've always known that. So couldn't agree more. And, and a lot of people say that, you know, it's lonely at the top or the CEO is the most lonely position. And I think, I think there is truth to that. But man, does it help to have a partner like Cynthia? Yeah. Oh, wow. You guys are like partner goals. I mean, We're really. Like Valentine's Day. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm like, ride or die. I feel like we need to just put hearts everywhere right now on this, you know, heart emojis through the Zoom. Emotions. You know what it is? Though? It's, it's like heart emojis going around. But in, then it's also like we're in a, a, you know, like we're in the Walking Dead scene and we're, you know, we're killing zombies. <laughs> like, right? With her lane, left and right. <laughs> yeah, I will say that too. Like neither Bernie and I are soft. Like, we are not, <laughs> I do not get that impression. You, know, why do, you wouldn't have made it this far if you were. I, I mean, 
you clearly have developed some, you know, like Bernie Jean said, some scars over the years, grown some thicker skin, I'm sure, through many rejections and lessons learned and just, you know, probably many humbling moments. But I don't know, I guess going back to like, why did you start your own company? I mean, if you didn't want these types of moments or if you just didn't want to be challenged and you just kind of wanted to keep going where you are, I mean, that's fine too. You know, you could have done that too, but you you signed up for this as an and have, have made it, you know, made it, you made your company very successful. And, um, you know, one of the best things about that is that then you get to replicate it when you own your yeah. own, run your own company. You get to choose the people that you hire and promote and, and keep. And we're, we love our leadership team. We love our consultant team, like to the person and to them personally, we're committed and, we really like we know them on a personal level. And I mean, not that we get in people's businesses, because that's another lesson. So they add that. <laughs> but just, you know, we like we, we really didn't care. And, and we, again, we try not to hire exactly the same people because you need you need variety. You need people to challenge each other. But, yeah, we get to we get to hire other people that have a similar MO. Yeah, we're very good at. You know, we made this mistake in the beginning of the company and now we're pretty rigorous about it. Like no drama. We just, we want no drama people. We mm-hmm. hire senior people. Mm-hmm. I do, you know, the first round of recruiting with everyone and, you know, they, no drama, they roll up their sleeves. They don't really have an ego. They just want to do good work with smart people and get shit and that's done. It. They want to get shit done. Yeah. If I interview someone and they tap strategy a little too much, even though we're strategy consulting, I'm like, okay, you really just want to hear yourself talk. So too fluffy. Okay. Oh, strategy. So much fits into strategy. (laughs) Strategy. So fluffy. It can be. My my next question was, you know, how is Fit for Commerce different from other consultancies? And Bernadine, I think you you probably hit a lot of the points around that. But is there anything else you would add? How how your company, how you guys have built a company intentionally different from maybe what you've seen out there? I, I would say that we specifically wanted to create a company that of course, had the strategery, but it was a much more practical, tactical, agile team. One of my first jobs out of out of college was, like I said, at one of the bigs. And we've worked with many of the big consultancies. And we just found that the real work and the real health is more fun and gets done when we're just alongside our clients. And we're much more flexible we're much more affordable too, and that we can just work alongside our clients. So we, some of our clients, and look, if you walk into any North American mall, two thirds of the brands and the retailers in that mall have been clients of ours. If you, if you drive, I live in New Jersey. So if you drive down any route, (laughs) then, you know, any, any sort of errand route, you know, you'll see the big box retailers and mid-sized company. Again, half of those have been clients of ours. And we're very lucky to have this incredible client list, but what, and, and yes, they hire the big McKinsey's and Bain's and Accenture's and Deloitte's, but they also hire us, or sometimes they hire us instead because we can put the team on that has been there, done that. Our team, we, I always say, I don't know if any, like I'm a big Olympics fan, but you know, the glory of victory and the agony of defeat. We've got that. We've got those scars. Our team has, has been the in charge, you know, own the PL for, you know, for Dick's Sporting Goods, has been the head of technology for off, for Home Depot and Office Depot, actually. We wow. have people who've just like, they've been there, done that. 
but their personalities, and that comes down to what Cynthia said about recruiting, is that they are very willing to roll up their sleeves and help others. So like, I think that is a very different kind of culture and MO than most of the consultancies. So those senior people, it's very flat. We don't have, so there's, it's very, very collaborative. Everybody works really well with each other. And on one project, you're the the engagement manager and another, you're just a, a worker on that project, but because it changes. So it's very flat and we don't have that. A pyramid that people are trying to or, you know, people are jockeying for a position. So yes. there's none of that. So so when now we say we're the Avengers, the, like the broader set of all the Avengers. <laughs> Love it. Had a superhero movie person. <laughs> I've seen a few of them and I, I, I'm tracking, but probably not. I am not the biggest. I'm tracking. <laughs> tracking. I, I, I got it. But, you know, having also started my career at Accenture, it, you know, having experience working at a big five and, you know, at a very junior level and then hearing you guys and how you can go up against these big consulting companies and offer something truly unique, be at a more competitive price with high, highly talented people who just want to do good work and are interested in an upper out policy or fitting into a pyramid band. And, you know, the, I, I think right there that that automatically just, um, it just, if, if I were to hire you, it just, I would be more interested in working with your team than a team of people who are competing against each other internally or trying to like get to partner. And, and there's just all these competing agendas versus like, who's the company? Who's the consultancy that is going to do work for my business and truly cares about me and my people and my team and come and be a reflection of that and work alongside us. And I'm not trying to bash the bigs at all, but there's just always seems to be a, you know, an underlying agenda there when, well, and first of all, we're way more fun. (laughs) Okay. Just put it out there. We are way more fun. (laughs) But we care a lot more. Yeah, yeah, we can personally care a lot more. And our folks are literally coming from the client side. So they are... Mm -hmm. They have, you know, like I said, they, they, they're practitioners. And so it's not, it, it can't, it's just totally different. When you're at the bigs, the consultants come up like you and, you know, like how we started and, mm-hmm. and they're smart and, and they learn, but they haven't been in that position. And that's just a different model. And when you're yep. doing a certain kind of project, that is a good model. But for most of our projects where we are transforming, yeah. you know, or digitally accelerating a company when digital is only... 15 years old, then having people who've been there, done that is, is like, it ha- you know, has to be the way to go. Yeah. And our, our team is very familiar with the real world constraints of running these retailers. So even if you know what you should be doing, you know, they're very familiar with, you have old technology, you don't have the right team, you don't have the budget, you don't have, you know, so they're, they, they're very familiar with that. They can have mean, those conversations. Any- Yeah. I mean, any, I mean, the entrepreneurs that are listening to your podcast, Holly, you know, like they, they, there is, it doesn't matter what you're selling or what business you're in. There's probably a good point where you should stop and say to yourself, am I still being practical? Hmm. Am I like, how far has my invention, right? Whether that's a technology product or a service or something else, how far ahead has my product gotten away from being practical? And do I really have the adoption strategy that has some of that practicalness built into it? Whether that's, you know, do I truly understand where my customer is today, what they need, 
or what they will need in the future. If it's very future focused, how are they going to get there? You know, yes, I can sell the vision, but how are they really tactically going to get there? And so it's, you know, that practical nature is worth having, you know, stopping and thinking about, if not, you know, having like an actual brainstorming session about. Mm-hmm. It's, it, yeah, you hear the stories about founders whose companies don't make it because they became so insular, so out of touch with what their customers actually need and and lost the practicality or lost the, you know, the vision, lost sight of what, what their customers need in, in favor of maybe what they think their customers need versus what actually mm-hmm. they do need. I think that's, that's, a, that's, that's a really good point. I want to say something about that. When yeah. One of the things that keeps us not doing that is we're always bringing new people in, right? And so that always keeps us, we keep a, a core people and many people have been with us a long time, but we're always bringing new people in. And when I start talking with them, the one of the first things I say is, we have our ways of doing things, but so what? You've got a better idea, you have an idea, let's talk about it. We're always looking to stay current, stay fresh, improve. But I think that does help us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, always there's so there's millions, there's as many perspectives as there are people out there times a thousand, right? You know, each person brings a thousand perspectives of their own and it's just endless. All right. Well, let's move into the acquisition. I think many people listening have their own companies or thinking about starting a company. But I think what really makes me curious about your business, in addition to everything we just talked about, is just you guys got acquired. For some founders, that is the the ideal situation. You know, it's the holy grail or, you know, depending on how, on what a business's goals are, that can be like the ultimate goal, I guess, in starting a business if, if they want to start another one. I'm kind of rambling. Tell me about your, t- tell me about your acquisition process and it just like, how does that even work? Like, where did you even decide like, hey, this, this is for us. We want to do that. Well, I mean, you're right. It's a, it's a journey. It's a process. We are very lucky that over the first 14 years, we were often asked and by other companies, would you ever sell? You know, would you be interested? And, and, and the bigs and the, and many other different kinds of companies saw value and, and have expressed interest. So we were very flattered. I think we just weren't ready. And like I said, it's, it's, you know, it's not been a linear, growth process for us. We have been in that trough of despair. We have been in periods where we weren't sure we were going to make payroll. And we've also been, you know, had some some great fortune. To be honest, COVID, you know, very bad for a lot of reasons, but really good for the digital omni-channel industry, uh, where, of course, you know, it was a big push. And we have this saying that, you know, 2030 happened in 2020. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, customer behavior and and because customer behavior change or circumstances change, so customer behavior had to change. And all of a sudden, many of our clients had to double down, triple down in, in digital investments, right? All of a sudden, we could pick up curbside or we could, you know, buy online, pick up in store. And all of a sudden, Opus, yeah. could order, you know, all of a sudden she knew she did her groceries, you know, by by shopping online. And so it really pushed it. And so after the the first shutdowns of uh, during COVID, which by the way, during that time, we were managing some of our clients' e-commerce programs. And so all of a sudden, we are managing the only part of their business that's open. Wow. And we're helping them with that. And then and then stores started coming back online and our 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 the you know the work that we were doing really accelerated. 
we started having one of our best years. The next year, 2021, we were having again, like yet another great year. And we just thought, you know what? I think this is the year that we go to market. And we had already been talking with bankers and with potential acquirers for the, for the years before. And so we kind of just turned it on. And so we actually did go through a formal process with an investment banker that prepared us, that networked for us. And, and we went to market and we talked to, you know, again, very grateful for this, several in interested parties. They were very varied. And then we decided on which one and, or, you know, we got it down to a smaller list and, you know, we went further and then, and then we got it down to a shorter list and then, and then we made our decision and we're very glad for the decision. We look back and we're, we're super excited about the decision to, to, to join OSF Digital, which for us was a, we decided not to go with the bigs actually because OSF has been in this amazing growth pattern. They're doing great work. They are founded and run by a great group of by a great set of founders and a great group of people. And we thought, yeah, this feels right. And the economics, you know, worked for us. And so we're going to go this route. And, you know, there's a chance that OSF Digital gets acquired or IPOs in the future, and we might get another bite of the apple. So we're very lucky. We're very lucky. Sin, can you share like a little more about the process? Yeah, I think for... For me, the, the main things, you know, which really resonated, I think, actually with both of us was their culture. It was a very startup-y kind of culture. They were seemed very entrepreneurial. The, yes, they were growing. We were like their eighth acquisition that year. They invited us to meet them in Madrid when they were having Days of Excellence. Okay. It's a company meeting, <laughs> like a party. Yeah, a company, company meeting. meeting. They're so global. I love this about OSF. Yeah. Yes. Well, that was the other thing too. They've always Sorry. been work. They've always been work from anywhere, and that's how we have always been. So, like, if you know, we had to put our people in an office. I don't know what that would we we lose them. Um, so they had that philosophy. But what we liked about meeting them in Madrid, we really did click on a a personal cultural level with them. And they, you know, we were there. It was wide open. Like we could talk to anyone. We could have any conversation. We weren't, you know handled. So we thought that was like a, a real vote of confidence from them to to do that. And I think that with some of the other ones we were dealing with, it's like we'd ask a question, it would take two weeks to get an answer. With OSF, we'd ask a question, we'd get an answer right away. So we just thought, well, that's how we are. Like we're like that. So that would be that would be good. And also they didn't have a, a consulting arm. So rather than be subsumed by a larger consultancy, we we are the consulting arm now. So we thought that would be that. a really good opportunity for us. We yeah, are the cool. consulting arm. That's a, we yes. are. Yeah, we're the consulting muscle. And, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. and it really was important for us to think about our future as a team and not just, you know, what's good for Cynthia and Bernadine, but what's good for our team and how, how will we grow? How will our people grow personally, professionally, you know, and as a team? So that, so that, that, that's a good point to be, you know, so conscious about your team versus just what's in it for us as the founders. Obviously, there's, you know, different perks and benefits as the founders probably than being on, on the team. But I love that you guys thought about that holistically and you thought about that. This is a decision for everyone. That's what it, that's what it sounds like to me. What would you say has changed now that you're part of a bigger company? You know, you, you used to 
just be a standalone company. Now you're part of something bigger. What's changed in your lives? Like what's changed in the way that you do work? What's, what's been, if you want to talk about it, challenging, what's been easy or surprising? What's different? I think that what's different is we have bosses now, (laughs) but again, we all know I have a whole corporate infrastructure to help us, which we did not have before. We, I think our ability to, to expand our reach and that growth with OSF is something we would not have had on our own. Just, Mm -hmm. you know, we just couldn't do it. So I think we're all excited about that. We're getting into more verticals than we were in before. You know, different opportunities are coming our way that we wouldn't necessarily have seen. We were not strictly retail manufacturing, but, you know, a lot. So, so that is great. And, you know, we know payroll is going to be met, which is, if you, if anyone who's ever owned their own business, the stress of that is huge. Yeah. We always say that like Cynthia and I have owned huge multi-million dollar budgets, you know, when we, we ran our departments and stuff on Wall Street, but there is nothing like owning payroll, <laughs> <You're> owning, <laughs> like owning payroll. and realizing like, hmm, not only do I affect these, you know, X number of, of employees, but I, if each of them has an average of, of four people in their family, I'm also I'm so stressing <laughs> like four heads. <laughs> and yeah, that, that stress is just, is unbelievable. And mm-hmm. yeah, I would, I would echo what you said. And, you know, earlier when I said, we thought it was time. It was more, it wasn't, it was more like we thought it was time to take it to the next level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. like, oh, it's time to, to throw in out. the towel. Yeah. It's not yeah. at all. You know, it's, it's time to take it up a level. And how could mm-hmm. we, we love what we do. How can we help more people, more yeah. businesses? And so OSF and has verticals, which, you know, we were always interested in that, but yeah. we weren't doing enough of that. So. Yeah, OSF is in, you know, 12 plus different verticals. They have 40 locations around the world. I should say we have 40 locations around the world and 2000 plus people and growing. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a great size to, to join into and, you know, have the power of a global marketing team and global sales team and, you know, and more to help us grow. So it's, it's definitely been, it's definitely been a boon in terms of, the next chapter for us and how we, how we grow. Well, congratulations. I, I mean, it, the road to get to where you are, I, I love how we've just spent, uh, you know, cool, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes talking about this story and here you are today. And it's like all of these, you know, you've, you've increased your opportunities exponentially by, by this acquisition. And I'm so excited to see where, where you guys take this and being someone who's been on the receiving end of working with OSF, you know, in, in one of my consulting projects right now, we evaluated multiple vendors to help us through a Salesforce Commerce Cloud replatform. OSF came through loud and clear just as the right partner for all of the reasons that you just said. So right. I I also echo, and, and I think there's a lot of consistency there with what how you guys perceive the company and what your experience is with, as for me, as, as an acting client with, with my, with, with my client. So yeah, I've, I've loved working with OSF too. They've been great, wonderful partners. So fantastic. Congratulations. We love to hear that. For sure. Great. Our CEO, CEO, when he watches this, will be happy. <laughs> no, yes. Yeah. Tell him there's, I'll, I'll give you the minute. So he can just go right to the minute of where, where, <laughs> exactly, where we praise, exactly. where we praise yeah. OSF. <laughs> you know, there's there's a notion in the business that is it's called the vector test, right? And and the and it's that 
if you look at a company and you test it from multiple angles, right, that are unrelated and they point in the same direction, that vector is the same direction, then you know you've got a good thing going, right? So it's like if you're an airline and, and you know, this whatever, the data says that, you know, you're on time or whatever, but then somebody, you know, some tester actually goes and buys a ticket and flies as, as a customer and get, like gets, you know, like undercover boss kind of thing, you know, yeah. the same experience, you know, then you know that like, okay, the vectors are pointing in the same direction. So I think we just passed a vector test. There. This is a vector test. I love the, <laughs> wow. Thank you. I, I'm going to use this in my, in, I'm going to find a way to squeeze in a vector test. So <laughs> I can sound really smart and I'll thank Bernadine from, <laughs> you are for, for this. <laughs> <laughs> no, really. I, this was a vector test. I, I love that. Yes. Well, is there anything else you want to talk about when it comes to just your business journey? Otherwise, I have some more general questions about just women in technology. But is there anything we missed or anything that feels left out or not said? I just wanted to go back to the entrepreneur part and how payroll, you know, having to do payroll is is huge. And I think the other thing my lesson learned as an entrepreneur, and I think you know, every entrepreneur will. When I, it was more when I had my brightest line, when I had a visible store and I had, you know, people working for me in the store was not only was I responsible for payroll, I also had to buy the toilet paper. Like, <laughs> you know, I was on Wall Street. There was always toilet paper. I didn't, yeah. <laughs> I have to run out and buy it. But yeah, so that's, a, I mean, definitely it, it went back to my, you know, like I said, my many, many people in my family have owned diners. That's sort of, you know, how I grew up. But it was a thing when you own your own business. Yeah, you own your own business. Great. You know, you make all the decisions, but the dishwasher doesn't show up. You're washing dishes. I mean, it's a it's a very the total ownership, the total mm. ownership. And, and you have to be prepared to do everything and you have to prepare to never take a vacation. You have to prepare to even when you do take a vacation. It's always in your head and you're always, you know, what's the problem? Anybody calling me? You know, I mean, I grew up with people on their own businesses and, you know, my dad never took a vacation really. So. Yeah. And just, Which yeah. is why we, we packed boxes. We set up booths. Yeah. We, we checked the printouts. We, you know, you do everything that you need to do in order to make the business go. And if you're go. not prepared to do that, then don't be an entrepreneur. The dope. Yeah. You know, you bring up a really good point, Cynthia, and this is just something I, I read a book recently called Chasing Failure and it, Ryan Leak. It's written by Ryan Leak. And he talks about how every successful business owner or entrepreneur has a answer to this question. So what has what does having your own business, what has it cost you? And and I think, Cynthia, you just outlined some very real things like limited vacation. Even when you go on vacation, it's in your head. You have to buy the toilet paper. You have to worry about the dishwasher breaks and doing dishes. But is there anything that you guys think just being, you know, entrepreneurs for so long, what does this cost you in terms of maybe, and, and not to put a negative spin on it, but just to be real about like the the sacrifice that you, you've had to make to to make this business really successful? I think grant sweat tears. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> and say blood, sweat, and tears for sure. And and mm -hmm. you know when in you know instances money. But I think that and I think that for me, I couldn't have kept doing what I was doing anyway. Hmm. I just couldn't have. So it was sort of no choice. So that's why I quit. I bought a bridal salon. That's why I did this. I just I really had no choice. Sort of. Yep. 
Yeah, I think, you know, when entrepreneurs get together and I've, I've, been, I've belonged to entrepreneur groups and, you know, YEO and Vistage and, and others, it, it just the stress is a very different kind of stress. And so it's a stress on time. It's a stress on focus. And I developed TMJ, you know, it's a, it's a jaw issue. And I like, once I developed that and now I got to sleep with a mouth guard and everything, I real like, and I talked about it with people. I realized, oh my God, this is a very common phenomenon and it's, it's stress driven. And, you know, some people grind, some people clench at night. And yeah. so it's a physical manifestation of stress as is weight gain, as is whatever yeah. hair loss. I don't know, but just, mm-hmm. you know, there is a mental and a physical toll. And then I think for those that have families that, you know, you're trying to balance, especially for women, that is unbelievably hard. There is no such thing as having it all. So, mm-hmm. you know, the the sort of missing time. And even if you don't have a family, just having not as much time for yourself or not as much time for yourself with, with you know, friends, it just like that does take a toll too because you're always mm-hmm. trying to balance that. Yep. I can relate to the TMJ. I, I clench and I know when I'm really stressed out that my jaw hurts really bad. And, and that's not something that, you know, I had in college or in my younger years, but I, I would say that, yeah, that's interesting that I don't have TMJ, but I'm sorry to hear you have to experience that, but yeah, you're right. Our bodies just manifest stress in different ways. And also a good sign to pay attention. Like, okay, I'm getting too stressed. My jaw is telling me. (laughs) Right. Right. That's true. It's a signal for some Uh self-care. Yep. Well, so switching gears again, and and just on the, the last topic, this is season two of this podcast and it's focused on women in tech. Season one was purely focused on interviewing business owners. Well, right here, we're like checking both boxes. So, you know, we've definitely covered your entrepreneurial journey with a twist of being a woman in many different situations. But when it comes to being a woman in tech and a woman on Wall Street in a time where there are far less women, how would, what would you say are the similarities or the differences of being a woman in tech versus when you're on Wall Street? It seems pretty similar to me. I think that well, the two things I want to say, when I was on Wall Street, I had many male bosses. I, we, everyone would joke, women would like, when you went to a Wall Street offsite, it was the only time as a woman that you have no problem getting into the restroom. That's <laughs> <laughs> the only time. But I had many male bosses who gave me good advice. And I remember one, one said to me when I was in conference rooms, he said, you know, he called me later and he said, don't smile so much. You're too smiley. I'm like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but I get what he was saying, because as a woman, you're not really taken that seriously. So I learned to condition myself to not make sure people had coffee and make sure, you know, things that just are my nature as a woman. As a good person. As a good mm-hmm. person. that you, I would certainly do with a group of women. But in that circumstance, it was I was sending the wrong signal. Right. So I had to I had to watch out for that. Don't be the note taker. Don't be the note, the note taker. taker, the lunch order, the. Right. Yeah. Right. The coordinator. Right, right. Even though you're just doing it in an effort to to help, yeah, exactly. Uh, and the uh, the thing about women in in tech slash digital, I'm not sure it's it's true. The last five years, but prior to that, I would go to these conferences, and there'd be lots of women there. Or during my recruiting processes, where I would talk to you know the SVP of digital, the SVP of marketing, the you know whatever the head of ecom, and I would ask them about their career and how they started. And so many times, I mean, I don't have like actual statistics, but 
way more than half of the time, I would ask them and they would say, well, for this is just an example, but like, oh, well, I was working at Tory Burch and they they wanted to do something with e-commerce. They'd heard about e-commerce, whatever, and they wanted to do it. And so they asked me, you know, would I do it? And I said, sure. They learned it. No more money, nothing extra, but just like, sure, they do it. And the other thing is sometimes the women would go to their bosses and they'd say, well, I'm learning about e-commerce and I think we should do something. And they're like, no, no, no. And they're like, yeah, I really think. And they said, well, if you want to go do it, go do it. (laughs) And I think if they had known then what they know now about digital, that would not have happened. There wouldn't be so many women in very senior roles in in digital. I think that was like a, I think no one valued it. So women just jumped in to help and they got careers out of it. That's fascinating. Yeah, I think that we, you know, as we said, like we came from the world where, I mean, we had chairs thrown at us and cursed out and or, you know, in an environment where people were cursed out all the time and or very inappropriate behavior. Yeah, lots of lewd lewd comments and oh, and touching and, you know, all this stuff. And of course, now, you know, would not be tolerated and and so on. It still happens. It it absolutely still happens. But Um, now you're more educated about the ability to not tolerate it. But mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I think like the environments have changed. But as you said, like, I think it's it still happens. And so for women in technology, especially if you're in a group where there you are in the minority or you are like outnumbered, you know, or just like or you're feeling different and people can feel different for many different reasons or not included or not, you know, or you're feeling other then Yes, there's more support for it these days in general. But at the same time, it, it it's it's not. It's it's still a problem. And I think that you know women have to support each other, and you know mentor like we have to mentor each other. You have to find mentors, and and we do have to open those those doors and those conversations for it. And you've got to find the woman that is or woman or advocate. It could it could be a male advocate mm-hmm. to help you clear the issue or clear the way or or help you you know get forward. It's a little bit more common to have women's groups in Mm -hmm. technology, in companies, or find a community group. Like, you know, we at NRF and with with some others, we had a women in retail technology. Yeah. I'm on the email list. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, women Mm -hmm. in in retail and Cynthia started women in e-commerce and and women Mm -hmm. e-commerce execs. So like there are groups out there, just go find your tribe, you know, whether that's a one mentor three people or a whole community, I think it is important to to seek that out. As a woman of color, what would you say, would you give any different advice to other women, women of color, Bernadine, or would you, is there anything based upon your experience through your career that, that you could offer women also that are, you know, women of color? Yeah. What, what would you, what would you offer? Funny you should ask. I just joined the board of Women of Color Retail Alliance. Amazing. Uh, which was founded by some amazing women. Just Google Women of Color Retail Allowance, uh, Allowance, Alliance. And it's in the show notes. Yep. Yep. WOCRA for sure. W-O-C-R-A. And there's definitely conversation and there's definitely, I, I would just say like additional support or just sort of a different shared experience that's there. I'm guessing it's probably different for, you know, black and brown women versus Asian women. There's just a maybe a different sensibility. But I do think that there is a shared 
feeling of otherness and feeling of, you know, not always having the seat at the table or that, you know, how we are perceived is, is just, is either lesser or different or just not thought of it at first. And Cynthia and I have this conversation many times, like we'll get off of a call. We're like, okay, if we were tall white men, would, would that person have said that, you know? Like, I, I even feel sorry for the short white men, you know, just like there are differences in how people talk to you or perceive you. And so, you know, how can how can we as women of color support each other and women or white women be good allies for women of color? And how can our male colleagues also be good allies and, and allyship? Listen, we like we all got an educate more aware of an education over the last like couple of years with BLM and and Me Too and so on and learning about like what does allyship mean it happens in small micro ways and it happens in big ways so again I would you know I would encourage women to seek each other out attend things like the like the content that that Wolker puts out and you know and be proactive about it and I think the challenge too is how can we educate make them make men more aware in a in a constructive way that's not a defenses up way. And yep. I think, you know, that that's I mean, I work on that all the time. <laughs> what, how many times have we heard a, a male a male say, all right, then I'm just never I'm not gonna have a meeting with, you know, with a woman by myself. Well hang on. Yeah. The the goal is not so that you don't have a one on one with any women. Yeah. Or women of color or people of color. Right. Yeah. The goal right. is that you just have a normal conversation. Like that you, you conduct yourself as a as yeah. a normal person. Like yeah. it's not not asking a lot here, people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but yeah. it is it is and it's challenging. It's very challenging. Mm-hmm. Like the number of times I correct men for saying the girl. <sighs> but I gave it to the girl, or I I told the girl, oh. or I or I was talking to this girl over at Ralph Lauren. I'm like, no, uh-uh. no. Or man, manpower or, you know, all of the, the kind of terminology that, that that's my shtick is all the, the terminology oh, that's, quite, that's a, quite a battle to fight. <laughs> oh, I know. But you know, I, I have a funny story. I, I, I want to share with you both really quick. We were working on this deck with a, with another partner and it was a, ma- a male firm. And this is at my current retail client. And they produced a PowerPoint that had a woman, you know, women and men, like photos of women and men in office scenes and stuff. And they had this one woman acting in a lead role, but she was wearing this suit and a short skirt and these heels. And and the men were all in like suits and ties too. But I'm like, why, why does the woman have to be wearing a short skirt and heels? And this was when we were reviewing the deck before it was presented to our, our leadership team. And, you know, my, my immediate gut reaction was like, I have to say something. I would be embarrassed if they, if they produced this deck, but this was a deck they'd used at multiple different clients of their own that they were just, you know, repurposing for us. And so I feel like, feel good that I did my part to say, can you make the clothes more gender, gender neutral? Can you put the women, woman out of like the, the admin lead role? a scrum master role. Can you make her maybe the engineering manager? Can you make her like in a different role and put a man in the scrum master? So (laughs) I I think it just happens on a little case by case basis though. And hopefully if they use that deck again, now the woman has like pants on and she, (laughs) she's doing like a a role that's, you know, 
you know, more just, you know, non-gender based. So I don't know. I think it just happens conversation one conversation at a time at a, at a micro level, to your point, Bernadine. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, DEI efforts, right, are a lot about representation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but representation is really only the first part. Having representation means you have different perspectives and voice at the table. So if you have those, if you have more of that diversity at the table, then somebody else is going to notice that, yes. that woman thing or yeah. that there aren't enough women or that, oh, we just went, we just heard about this, you know, a vendor went to a pitch and every person that they brought was was a man. And mm-hmm. they picked the best people to go to this meeting with all the good intentions and so on. But then the client was like, you just showed up with all these white men. Oh, you know, a hundred percent. And literally yes. decline them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one of our, and I, I've learned a lot more about DEI from some of my women's work, the way that like inclusivity was, someone explained this to me was sort of like, okay, diversity is you're having a party and you've got a diverse group of people coming to the party. Inclusivity is when that, when a person walks in the room, let's say a woman of color, does she feel included? Are we playing music that is, you know, makes her feel comfortable? Do we have different kinds of food that make her feel like she can eat something that is whatever, you know, is, is comfortable for her? Is the conversation about topics that, you know, are really make somebody feel comfortable? So you can have diversity and you can check the boxes on who's in the room. But if if the people in the room don't feel comfortable, then you haven't done enough on the inclusivity front. Yeah. And it's a lot of work. And it's, uh, yeah. you know, you have to really, it is a lot, a lot of, of intentionality, really a lot of yeah. intentionality. Like that example that you gave, Polly, to give everyone the benefit of the doubt, it's, you know, let's assume they didn't say, let's put a woman in a short skirt in here. Yeah, I don't think they did. I don't right. think they thought anything right. was wrong. Like it wasn't it. It was sexist, but it was, they weren't trying to be that way. Mm. Nor were they seeing <laughs> saw right. Yep, but was smacking you right in the face. They mm-hmm. didn't see it, no. but they will now. raise it. Yep, yep. It's a journey. That's for it's sure. It's a journey. Well. Final question. My goodness, I could talk to you ladies literally for days. This has been wonderful. I have learned so much. I think you're very good at this. <laughs> well, thank you. You're amazing guests. You made this really easy. So final question, just how can people find you? How can they connect with you? How can they hire you? How can they learn more about what you do? Where, where are you in the in the internets? Well, you know, we're part of OSF Digital. So, you know, you can visit OSF Digital. I happen to have a name that is very unique. So it's easy to Google <laughs> you do. my name and, and find it's me. It's pretty and, unique too, I have to say. And you'll find all these awful old videos, pictures of me. But yeah, I uh, thank you so much, Holly. I think, you know, my, like, I guess I want to end on sort of like hashtag gratitude for my partner, my friend, Cynthia, but also for women like you and and our listeners who are just like, there's energy here. And there is like, we're out to do something, right? Yes. We may not ever meet, but just we're out to do something together. And that is awesome. And to move the industry forward and to move our, our lives forward and the, you know, the world as a, as a bigger place. So I'm, I'm just really grateful for this opportunity. Oh, thank you. I am as well. And you know, part of my job is just talking to people all day long. And <laughs> Bernie and I always say there's no there's no wasted conversations, which I think is true. I mean, we learn something from 
from every single one of them. And honestly, there's nothing I like better than than talking with smart people about things we care about. So, well, on that note, thank you, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. And who knows, maybe I'll have you back on next another time. We'll see where this goes. And and I'll definitely see you at, at a conference in the upcoming weeks. I'm excited to meet you in person and appreciate your time. And thank you. Thank you. Bye. Are you curious if your business idea will actually work? Don't worry. I've got you. Your best business idea starts here at hollynoll.com slash free. Go to the link and download my free business action guide. In this guide, you'll map your skills and expertise to build a profitable business idea. You'll solidify an irresistible offer that turns contacts into clients. And you'll implement my step-by-step framework to quickly land your very first client. Thank you for joining me this week on the Everyday Entrepreneur Podcast. There are thousands of podcasts out there and you chose to be here with me. And for that, I am truly grateful to you. For more information on today's episode and this podcast, visit hollynoll.com slash podcast, where you can find links discussed in the shows and connect directly with my guests. Remember to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're at it, if you enjoyed today's show, share your rating on iTunes. Or if you'd rather tell a friend about the show, that would mean the world. And remember, check out my free business action guide at hollynoll.com slash free. Or for more business building tools, visit the consultant code on Instagram. Until next time, keep taking action to build your business.